independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. Green Dreamer is a community-powered, interdependent show made possible by listeners like you. And you can support our work by sharing your favorite episodes and making a donation at patreon.com slash green dreamer. I'm your host, Kamea Shane, and today we're speaking with Dr. Alexis Shotwell. That idea that individuals should take care of big, complicated problems and that we are morally responsible and therefore failures if we don't hold those standards of perfection. That's something that's been really weaponized, I think, against us as individuals, but also against the possibility for collective movement. Dr. Shotwell's work focuses on complexity, complicity, and collective transformation. A professor at Carleton University on unceded Algonquin land, she is the co-investigator for the AIDS Activist History Project and the author of Knowing Otherwise, Race, Gender, and Implicit Understanding, as well as Against Purity, Living Ethically in Compromised Times. If you've ever felt the guilt of imperfection or, you know, being morally policed through an individualistic lens that overlooks the systemic barriers that you might face, then this is really a must listen for you. We begin with Alexis sharing about the critical moments that sparked her interest in looking into this idea of purity in compromised times. So I think it depends on how far to go back. I'm the child of Buddhist hippies. So I kind of grew up in a milieu where people were thinking and talking about what it meant to want to have a better world and a world where there was more freedom and less suffering. And I think because of that orientation, and my parents also are environmentalists who have been working on ecology and climate justice for more years than I can count. And because of those things, I started to really pay attention to how people talk about what we should do and then how that matches up with what seems to work, what brings more people in to working on complicated problems, what spins people out. So I started really in my first book, which you mentioned, looking at the importance of paying attention to feeling and common sense understanding and presuppositions and lots of things that we don't have an easy way to put into words. And I became really convinced that these things, implicit understanding, that these are really important to 
personal transformation and also collective political transformation, especially around race and racism. So I kind of started there and I spent a, a lot of years working in that area. And I'm happy to say more about that stuff. And I think always when you finish one big project, all the things that you didn't do or that, you know, kind of got left out, come up or you finish making one answer to a question and it opens more questions. Mm. And so it was really out of, I'd moved, I'd been teaching in a philosophy department and I moved and started teaching in a sociology department and something about that and about, yeah, thinking about how hard it is to change things made me really start turning to looking at complicity and complexity. And that's what I've been worrying on and thinking on for maybe about seven years now. Mm. I find what you speak to in regards to this idea of purity really relatable and resonant because within the social and climate justice movements, I have often witnessed this sort of pursuit for personal purity, especially with the lifestyle-centered movements that are very much trendy and get a lot of attention, at least on social media. And, you know, many do recognize that it is impossible to be perfect and therefore resort to calling themselves imperfect activists. Mm -hmm. Though for me, I think even identifying as imperfect still centers on the individual and suggests that there is a way to be perfect amidst our greater systems that are rooted in exploitation and extraction. But I wonder if what we're seeing permeate the activism space has to do with the individualistic culture that sort of set the stage for it? And otherwise, what do you think it is that gave way to this sort of moral superiority complex and even this idea of purity based off of individual action? Yeah, it's a beautiful question. So one thing that I've become really convinced about is we are definitely seeing a upsurge of kind of individual me-centered lifestyle activism, but that tendency has really long, deep roots in Western culture. So, and not all of them are evil. So when you go kind of way back, there is this sense of asserting individual boundaries as a human person has been a really important key political demand. It was likely one of the things that helped move people out of feudalism. So there's not everything is bad there. But that idea that individuals should take care of big, complicated problems, and that we are morally responsible, and therefore failures, if we don't hold those standards of perfection, that's something that's been really weaponized, I think, against us as individuals, but also against the possibility for collective movement. So there's sort of two things I want to say about that individualism. One part is, I think we could actually say, whenever we have the feeling or the wish that just by our own personal actions, we could fix the world and transform everything. That's actually so loving, right? Like in a certain way, that is something that it's a lovely aspiration. And if anyone could, through their individual force of will and their personal behavior, 
solve global warming and systemic racism and do away with incarceration and indefinite migrant detention and, you know, anyway, all of it, right? Mm -hmm. If anyone could, then I would say, that's great, please do. So it's always going to be a failing idea, right? We, we know right away that using my portable chopsticks that I bring everywhere with me so I don't have to use a plastic fork, that all of the lifestyle things that we do, they don't solve it. But the impulse is something we can actually tune into. That, that impulse to say, if there was something I could do, I would want to do it. That's actually tremendously useful and hopeful. The bad thing is that because of capitalism, there's just lots of forces. And it's not like a single evil person who's kind of like, you know, cackling <laughs> in their in their supervillain fortress. But there's many, many different forces that are trying to take that impulse of wishing that we could help this world and commodifying it and commercializing it and individualizing it. And also making us feel that if we can't personally solve everything, we should just give up now and order all the plastic crap we want from Amazon and like take lots of plane trips because soon the world will be over and we might as well take lots of plane trips. So individualism is bad because it, it doesn't work and it demobilizes us and it makes us make bad decisions. But the impulse to wish to be better, that's useful. We can do something with that. So I'm really interested in how, when we're in spaces together, we can take that impulse and instead of saying, you know, your, your chopsticks that screw together are themselves impure and fraught because they're made out of metal that was mined, dur -dur -dur -dur. I'm really interested in how we can take those individual impulses and turn them toward collective work and getting mm -hmm. more people together and tuning into that part that's about, oh, I too care about these things, right? We, we all do. What could we do that would actually be effective? I almost wonder if there are certain presumptions that underlie this idea of individualism, as in how it even defines the self. Because I've been thinking about how different cultures conceptualize the individual and the self differently. So many indigenous cultures view the self as the land. And so desecrations of the land are forms of self-destruction. I recently also spoke with Dr. Tyson Yunkaporta, who sees the self as an embodiment of all of his relationships, saying that the mm -hmm. self is nothing without those relationalities. As you explore this idea of individualism and the boundaries of what's considered a self, what do you think are the underlying presumptions of that within the dominant Western culture that reinforce this illusion that we can decontextualize and disentangle ourselves from history and the future or everything that's happening beyond our conceptualizations of the self? Well, absolutely. I mean, so these conceptions of the self as bounded by the skin, as in control, as independent, as capable of willing itself into the future as though the self will not be transformed. These are all part of philosophical schools, really, that arose out of the Enlightenment, and not to say that everything in the Enlightenment was bad by any means, but that idea was really 
central to a particular kind of world making that maybe also is rooted in a particular conception of Christianity. So the, the sense that like the body is the container for the soul, the soul is inviolable and moves on. All of those things are bundled, right, in in Western philosophical work. And they get weaponized in this current moment, which we think of as the neoliberal mo- moment. So that idea of the self is a liberal conception of the self, the like the self-willed autonomous agent who ends at the boundaries of his skin. In my work, one of the things that I feel sure of now is that that conception of selfhood is very deeply embedded in practices of whiteness and creating creating this social entity of a white person who is pure, inviolable, and self-willing. So whenever I think and talk about purity and individualism, it, it often comes back to seeing the ways that in philosophers like Kant and many others, that idea of the, the willed reasoning person was meant to be, and it was like explicitly articulated as a white man. And many of those conceptions are what animated political practices like chattel slavery, like colonialism, and we inherit those, right? So those are still circulating. And even they're still circulating when we have a sense that, oh, indigenous people are connected to land, but white people are like cut off from our history and we don't have any relationship with the world. So in the work that I'm doing now, one of the things I really am interested in is what does it look like for white settlers like me to be able to experience and live an understanding of interdependence rather than independence that also isn't appropriating those understandings from any particular indigenous tradition or life world. And I think that's a really key question for us right now in the climate movement. Mm. And to further this, you also speak to our need to understand that we are a product of history and we must therefore take responsibility for history. And when we get into this space of discussing accountability for the past, accountability for things that past generations have done, it gets messy. So we mm-hmm. will have people whose ancestors committed great atrocities, who feel that you know they may be good people today and shouldn't be punished for what their great, great, great grandparents did. We will have people whose ancestors were the people who faced those atrocities, who still very much are dealing with generational trauma and the material conditions that came from that. And then, of course, there are many people who are descendants of both the perpetrators Mm -hmm. and the victims of systemic violence and everything in between. And then, of course, there are different degrees of violence, whether institutional or chronic or acute and so forth. So given that history is so immensely complex and yet we're all entangled within it and collective healing requires that we confront it. What does taking responsibility for history even mean? And because it is sort of a collective work, how does an individual even begin? There's a couple of pieces that just are so generative to think through with you. So one part is once we start to think about those layers of history and how we're situated in relation to them, 
there can be a tendency to want to claim innocence, right? So to say, because I didn't personally do that, or I didn't really benefit from it, I don't have anything to do with it. And so that's, I mean, people do that, but it's its not a very useful thing in terms of actually reckoning with all the things that we inherit. And it's not really accurate either, right? The, the distribution of life chances and toxins is, we can really see this is, these inheritances track and shape our lives. So that sense of taking responsibility for something, even if we didn't personally do some wrong to others, is really a good way for us to reorient toward reckoning with everything that we inherit and for especially white people, but also settlers and people who are documented, we can say we receive unearned benefits and uh, how are we going to use them toward justice or toward a different different kind of world? So one thing, like as you said, we don't have any history that isn't complicated. Almost none of us do. And the nice thing there is as soon as we give up the idea that someone needs to be innocent in order to be useful, we can start working together. So we'll have lots of different positions, different life experiences, different histories, but probably none of them are going to be completely uncomplicit in anything, right? No, none of us are going to be innocent of at least receiving the benefits of oppression along one line or another. And once we say that's just the situation we're in, then we can start actually pulling on any of the places where we're complicit or where we feel a sense of wishing that things could be otherwise. And maybe I should just give an example here. Would that be helpful? Yeah, go for it. So, I mean, I've been thinking about this in terms of kin and inheritance. And my own family history is, you know, it's very ordinary, right? So many of my ancestors were driven out of Ireland by famine, which was a colonial technology of dispossession and pushing people out of common lands where they could have sustenance lives and into wage relations. And then many of my ancestors came to North America in various waves. And my mom has been doing genealogy work. So I know that at least some of my ancestors uh, lived in the Caribbean and did things like were divers to secure wharves to assist with shipping sugar. So we have these material connections to chattel slavery that way. Some of my ancestors who moved to Canada, one was a surveyor. So he was explicitly directly connected with mapping the land that the railway would go on. That railway was excavated by basically enslaved Chinese laborers. And it was a key piece of the dispossession of indigenous lands and their expropriation by the, what would become the Canadian state. So it's important to me that none of my ancestors were, like none of them were bosses or big villains, right? They were just ordinary settlers. But they're sort of ordinary, just trying to make a living, just trying to get away from famine, 
was the engine, one of some of the engines for colonialism and dispossession. So I can respond to that by just saying, those were my ancestors. I don't, they don't have anything to do with me. I didn't survey any rail lines, but I can take a different approach and I can instead start looking at what it would mean for me to now be in solidarity with the idea that indigenous peoples should have their land back. Like what's the actual practice of that? What does that look like and mean? And right now what that looks like and means for me is I try to really be on the side of people who are doing land defense, which happens to also be the people who I think are doing the most useful direct work to do things like shut down oil pipelines and many of the other things that we absolutely need to do as a species if we're going to live on this earth and survive. Mm. So I can take that history that I inherit and turn toward it instead of turning away. Right. And I really think that just sitting with and being okay with complicity really invites us to go beyond the simple, oversimplified binary of good versus bad. It almost feels like it's like a multidimensional sphere or plane or what have you of complicity where we sort of better understand our relationalities to history and to the present and therefore use that to inform what our roles might be in helping to co-create our future. And what I've noticed is that when people center the experiences and histories of different people, it leads them to draw different conclusions about how drastically we need to change our society in order to achieve justice and to find healing. Mm -hmm. And the more that we center the most marginalized peoples of today, the more radical our visions tend to become for societal transformation. And so when people do disentangle themselves from history to say that was the past, it has nothing mm. to do with me and us today, and there's nothing that I need to do about it, or I'm not even interested in learning how I relate to these greater contexts, my deeper question is always, how interested are we in disrupting this collective trend towards destruction? And are we interested in moving towards collective healing together? Because I really fear that if we don't collectively, because it doesn't fall on any one person's shoulders, but if we don't collectively recognize our history, historical traumas and harms, and the future that we want to work towards and the interconnectivity of everything, and then use that to guide our path forward, then we're just going to repeat history and repeat these cycles of self-destruction again and again in different forms. It's also so instructive, right? Because so often when I'm talking to people or I get input from them about something I've written, especially people who benefit from oppression, which all of us benefit from oppression in one way or another, but especially people who are like me, you know, white, currently middle-class living, you know, I live in a place that is not on fire right now. We tend, we beneficiaries of oppression sometimes we'll have a tendency to worry that transformation is just going to mean reversal. So especially when people really learn about all the harm and all the wrong that is happening and the way that they benefit from it, like people will say to me, I don't know what you mean that you want to give land back to indigenous people. I don't want to be, I don't want to be on a reserve. I don't want to be the subject of hunger experiments. I don't want my children taken away from me. Mm. And, and I think and say, yeah, that's right. Like, 
when we actually reckon with the history that is our history, a thing that people can feel really scared about is saying that if we settlers and white settlers in particular give up our power and say that we don't want to benefit from these systems of oppression anymore, that the result of that is that we'll be in the place that oppressed people have been. And, um, and so that's a, that's very instructive, but not instructive of just like, ha ha, you actually do know how bad oppression is. It's instructive because it shows the limits of our imagination, right? That, that we actually on some level, people who benefit from oppression on some level, don't think it's possible to have a transformed world. We only think it's possible to have, you know, some people on the bottom, different people on the bottom and different people on the top. But when you talk to people who are really in the middle of liberation struggle, a lot of the time what you hear is, no, we don't want to have a world where there's just different people suffering. We want to have a world in which many worlds can flourish. We want to have a world that is transformed, not just reversed. So we don't want to have anyone not having good water to drink. We don't have anyone not having good air to breathe. We don't want anyone to be scared that they can't eat the food they're growing in that soil because it's contaminated. We want to have a world in which everyone has enough to eat and air to breathe and water to drink. And we don't want that just for the human people, right? We want whole ecosystems that can flourish like that. So starting to expand the scope of our imagination so that our complicity and our benefiting from harm isn't the end of the story, but is the beginning of a different story is really important, um, important expanding work for us to do, to not accept that we have to have terrible oppression, just we need to distribute it differently, but to actually move toward saying no to oppression, you know, mm. and, and no to exploitation and, and saying, we don't need this. We don't need to have this be the organizing structure of our world. Actually, there could be something else. In a previous interview, you shared that something you felt you didn't do enough of in this book was talk about how the material conditions of history shape the conditions of the possibility for the future. So is this kind of what you just spoke to as in people who have experienced oppression might have different perceptions or ideas on our possibilities for the way forward. Yeah, I mean, so now the the book that I'm working on right now is called Collecting Our People, which is both like the hashtag kind of like settler collector and the collect your people approach. But it's also asking like, how do we actually get together and make change, make transformation? So I think that in Against Purity in that book, I I just, well, I just hold it as axiomatic that some people are more responsible than other people for destroying the world. And therefore they need to, you know, be more responsible for <laughs> transformation. But I only say it like a couple of times. And so now I'm really trying to think through that sense of what it means materially and practically to think about redistributing resources, looking at who's responsible and the differential responsibilities for great harm and violence, and taking those sort of twined, entwined 
strands and asking how we make this kind of transformation. So one way that I'm thinking about that is through what it looks like to make collective decisions where we actually can identify the stakes of what we're doing and find strategic ways forward collectively. Because a lot of the time I I witness um, people coming into consciousness and then trying to find some person to be the the kind of authority that's going to tell them what the right thing to do is. And I totally get that impulse. And it puts too much pressure on charismatic individual leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't actually build what sometimes we talk about as leaderful communities. So thinking about alternative practices for being together in collectivities that are really making change. That's one piece of what I'm finding really generative here. And then also being much more sort of blunt about who is hoarding resources, who's hurting the planet, like who's, who needs to start paying taxes, you know, like all of Mm. those things are um, much more animating the thinking that I'm doing now. Yeah. Yeah. I think what what you're speaking to is really relatable during this time with, you know, news about billionaires going to space. And there's a lot of people mm-hmm. saying how these billionaires are disproportionately contributors to our social and ecological crises. And they should be, they should therefore take responsibility and they need to play a larger role in helping to address the problems that they helped cause. But at the same time, reality kicks in for people and they're like, we can't expect, you know, these billionaires who are benefiting and profiting that they're going to voluntarily do differently. So I'm curious what you have to say about that, because, you know, ideally they can take a larger role in, you know, being accountable for the atrocities and the harms that they've really helped to perpetuate but then they're probably not going to voluntarily do that. So how do we work with this? Yeah. I mean, here I really take my cue from Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, who is a brilliant thinker and um, astrophysicist. And she had a great, she has a new book called The Disordered Cosmos that everyone should read. And she wrote a really brilliant short op-ed in the Washington Post not too long ago that her whole concern really is about like, what does it mean to say that we need a world in which the night sky is available to everyone and not just to a few billionaires, but where we actually don't give up on the idea of science and going into space, right? And so I'm a science fiction nerd and Mm -hmm. I love the idea of going to space and I, you know, that's amazing. And I am so angry (laughs) at the billionaires. And one of the things that Prescott Weinstein said is, it's not just that we want them to make different choices with their money. It's that we want them to be taxed, you know, so that people can make collective decisions about when and how we send people to space and what happens there. And so it's it's just, again, that turn from thinking that what we need is these billionaires to be better people to thinking that we need a redistribution of wealth and you know, there's so many different options for how that can happen. We could have a, you know, income maximum in the world, right? We could have, there's many, many different things. People are thinking about it and making like real, real things. 
uh, real proposals. But the thing that I think is most helpful is always for us to turn from wanting to change particular people to wanting to change the whole system. And I think the way that I think is helpful for us to think about that is to say, what's our theory of change, right? So theory of change being the way that you believe this world is going to transform. So if we say, I just want Jeff Bezos to have an awakening, or I want Elon Musk to awaken and care about the collective world, that theory of change is the idea that all we need to do is change people's hearts and minds And it's okay to have a few people have massively more wealth than other people. But I don't think that's a good theory of change, right? Because it doesn't actually destroy the entire system of capitalism and the existence of billionaires altogether. So we can have a theory of change that is, I think that the way that we, and there's many different alternatives, right? We could say, I think we need to have a situation where it's just not possible for a single person to have as much money as a country. We could say, I don't think we should have nation states. We can say, I think we should have, you know, there's so, but as soon as we turn from focusing on the individual to focusing on the collectivity, then we're in the terrain of politics. And the thing that's great about that in terms of thinking about charismatic leaders inside our movements is if we don't have individual people who are, you know, we're going to frame as like bad and evil, like, I mean, probably, probably actually people who are billionaires are like, they're kind of lost causes a little bit, right? Mm. They're not, I don't think they're, I'm not sure if it's worth calling them evil, but I'm not particularly interested in them, right? As humans, I am very interested in people who are who, who care about this world and are working on it and who sort of go a little bit wrong, right? So we see a lot of charismatic leadership crumble because those people get intoxicated with power or they get burnt out or they don't have a good idea, actually. They get disconnected from collective struggle. And so that's another purity politics, right? To say, if you're a leader, you have to be perfect and you have to know everything and you have to have a good idea about how to go forward. And it's that's a way to that's a way to kneecap movements, right? So instead, this turn toward collectivity means if we're all going to be leaders, like that, sometimes we're going to take different roles in the organization, but they can rotate. We can train each other to be the ones who talk to the media. We can train each other to be the ones who write things. We can help each other learn how to listen, how to do the dishes, how to do direct action, right? Like there's lots of different roles, and we can all be skilling up at it. And then when we make mistakes, which we inevitably will, that's not the end of our time, right? That's not, that doesn't mean that we get kicked out of the movement. That just means we made a mistake. So that sort of messy middle is, you know, we need to, we need to have um, hundreds of millions of people transforming the world together. And we're not ever going to do that by just having a few individuals who are really, really perfect. And then some other individuals who are really evil. It's got to be this kind of muddling along together towards something better. Right. And on this individualism and collectivism piece, I recently published an article contextualizing plastic pollution 
to show that while a bunch of these lifestyle movements have, have grown tremendously over the years, our plastic pollution crisis is set to worsen and global plastic production is estimated to near double within the next 10 years. So my point was really to show that we have to better understand the complexity of the crisis and redirect more of our efforts towards collective action to have a greater impact. But in the face of complexity with a message that you know, individualistic approaches have not really helped to address our systemic crises. There are always people who end up feeling helpless and despair and who might end up shutting down with this guilt with seemingly nowhere Mm -hmm. else to redirect it to. But I think the main Mm -hmm. message here is that there are more impactful moves that we can make beyond pursuits for personal purity. And it might take us giving up this idea of purity altogether as the goal to strive for in order to see the other paths that we can take. So rather than resorting to simplifying the problem so that we might feel better about our individual selves, what might be the power in surrendering individual control and even surrendering this desire to know exactly what the solution is and know exactly what we're working towards? So I think some of the power of thinking collectively is we can begin to ask strategic questions, right? And so the difference between a strategy and a tactic is a strategy is something that we come to, usually collectively, and then there can be many different ways that we organize ourselves, activities we take, tactics that build toward that strategy. So I think one of the things that we don't have enough of right now is strategic thinking, because we don't have as many collective formations as we probably need in order to skill up and find ways forward and make wins. So we could think about plastic as an example. We can say, what would be, what would be a win, right? And recognizing that any battles we win are just going to be the terrain for the next battle we fight. How are we going to set up the kind of thing that we're doing such that whether we win or lose, we've built a movement. It's bigger, it's more resilient, it's more capable. So a lot of the time, the way that we do this now is um, we have a few people who are massively committed. They work on a campaign really, really, really hard. They get super tired and burn out and get super disillusioned and they go back to sort of trying to just live a life. Have you seen this happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that's a tactic. Um, so that could be that could be doing manifestations, demonstrations, or trying to lobby government different ways, um, education campaigns. There's lots of different things. But if we're doing all of that and we're saying, how are we going to have all of us who care about this issue together come out the end of this campaign not burnt out, not disillusioned, not mad at each other? How are we building movements where other people want to be in them with us? Those questions, they reorient, they change it. Because actually struggling for a better world is profoundly joyful. And it can be so energizing. And that the fact that it can also be really um, boring and irritating work, right? Like other people are irritating and meetings take a long time and writing up the notes for meetings doesn't always feel useful. But when we're doing that kind of scut work, you know, that just like getting through at work 
towards something that we really care about. And when we find that lots of other people care about that thing with us, we begin to have this kind of wind of energy that lifts us. So thinking collectively and thinking about like, how are we all going to leave this struggle stronger and more nourished than we were when we came in is a, it's an important question. And it's one that I really have been benefiting from asking over the last 10 or 20 years. The other piece though, that I'm, I'm beginning to be just so compelled about, I've done a lot of work on the question of how interpersonal harm happens in movements. And I don't know a city that doesn't have an activist scene where someone has been sexually assaulted in the scene. And various people all over are doing really good work about trying to have better mechanisms for response and repair when that kind of interpersonal harm happens. It doesn't have to be sexual assault. It also can be just people being really nasty to each other or betraying each other in different ways. And the other piece that I've come to, though, out of it is I really think a thing for us to be doing in our spaces and movement spaces is setting up infrastructure that prevents harm. So not waiting until something bad has happened and having a really good response team, but having practices and systems in place that make it very unlikely that people are going to hurt each other. One of the best texts that I've been finding lately for thinking about this is Dean Spade's new book, Mutual Aid. So he not only has a really good sort of account of how to tell if you're getting to be a sort of like hero martyr to a cause, but also how to tell if if your organization is tending toward individualism, self-exploitation, and boundary violation, really, right? Like using more energy than someone actually has making them feel guilty for not contributing everything to the cause. So I know it sounds kind of boring, but it's like having really functional collective organizations where people really like each other and have fun and can see where we make wins. Like this is going to be the long good work that helps us actually turn. And I think we can do it. Like, I think it's, I think it's possible. I think there's a lot of people who care. And before we go into our closing lightning round questions, what else do you feel called to share in this moment that I didn't get to ask you about? And the other thing I wanted to ask you as we close off is, what does it mean for us to be working towards something that doesn't yet exist and that we can't fully conceptualize? We're always working toward a future that we can't predict. And that sometimes feels scary. But the thing that's great about it is we know that we don't want to just replicate what we inherit. And we know that we don't want to just continue what's currently happening. So it's definitely the case that we can orient ourselves toward building a world that doesn't yet exist. But because we live in this world and we know some things are really wonderful in it, it's not like that unknowability of the future is total, right? There's lots of things that we can say, I want the world that we're building to have these characteristics or these things that are more more like this. We sometimes talk about this in anarchist circles as prefiguration, so that we start to build the world that we want in our current practices. So if we want to be in a situation where people treat each other with respect in the future, we start treating each other with respect in the present. 
if we want to be in a situation where everyone has enough to eat in the future, we set up our meetings so that people can come and there's some food there. So it's very basic and practical and kind of kitchen sink. But out of those, we begin to envision these futures that are very big, you know. And I think the way that I think about this is that we can have aspirational solidarity. So we can be in solidarity with a future that doesn't yet exist, but we can be on its side. And we can be on the side of all the beings and all the people that could live and flourish in that future. And it's going to be different for everyone. So that's one thing that I also really want to say, that the place that we're coming to is definitely a place where whatever we care about, like whatever we are connected to, is a good place to start. And we don't have to do everything, right? We just need lots and lots of people to be working on the thing that they are connected to for a long time with steadiness and joy. And that's better than a few people working on a lot of things with guilt and franticness and desperation. So we can look to the activists who've been in this work for the long haul, and they exist. You know, people who've been doing this work for 50 years. Some of them have been doing it and they've been grumpy the whole time and no one, you know, wants to hang out with them. But a lot of people who've been doing this kind of work for a long time, they're a joy to be around and they're steady. And that's the kind of being we could be too. Show us how to give back to you. Traditions lost, we need to go back to. Winds of change, stronger every day. Winds of change, stronger every day. What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow, or a book that's been really profound for you? I really love Sins Invalid Disability Beauty and Justice Organization in the Bay Area. What personal mottos do you have or what practices do you engage with to stay grounded? Hmm. There's a line from Ursula Le Guin's uh, story, The Day Before the Revolution, where she says, an anarchist is one who choosing takes the responsibility of a choice. And I've really been working with that quotation as a question. I don't think I yet know what it means, but I'm interested in taking the responsibility of a choice. Mm. I'm going to think on that too. (laughs) And finally, what have been some of your greatest inspirations as of late that you'd like to share? One of the people that I really take inspiration from is a friend, David Gilbert, who has been in prison for most of my life and is in prison for life. And David is someone who just continues to think and organize and work beyond the bars of the prison. And I think connected to him, but also just thinking about all of the people who are locked up right now, who are continuing to care for each other and keep each other alive. I find that tremendously moving. Um, And then, you know, I'm really so just impressed by and it you know brings me to tears to think about 
the people who are really on the front lines of Indigenous-led solidarity movements to obstruct capitalism and the devastation of place globally. In, in the Canadian context, I think about this formation land back lane and the work that's happening right now around uh, the Ferry Creek blockades. It's all really complicated, but it's, um, you know, these are also some of the people that do just like long-term steady work. And I love that. Absolutely. And we all have so much to learn from the sort of collective action that is being worked on. Green Dreamer, we're coming to a close, but to learn more and stay updated on Dr. Alexis Shotwell's work and books, you can head to www.alexisshotwell.com. Dr. Shotwell, Alexis, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been an honor to have you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I mean, just we need to keep, keep going and keep loving. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To support the show starting from just $2 or to make a larger tax-deductible donation, you can head to patreon.com slash greendreamer. Without a media network or marketing agency behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive of conversations can reach and inspire more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with friends or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Mother by Jared Sowen, offered to us by Indigenous Cloud. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 